Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. We're here to present to... Behave yourself, R2. Mark is talking. Of course, I'm just as excited as you are. Now do be quiet. You see, my friends here are a perfect example of the combined talents of actor and technician. <laughs> Creating creatures that never existed. <laughs> and sounds that have never been heard before. This week, the story is about the Academy Awards of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. Only actually... Uh, not at all. This has nothing to do with the actual Oscars, which are happening this coming Sunday. And what a weird year for movies it's been when far more people found comfort rewatching the movies they already know that they love very much. And that's kind of the spirit of this podcast in general. So this week, we're going to be awarding Star Wars Oscars, I guess you could call them. Mm. Not officially. Uh, these are just based on our opinions. We've broken down the 11 theatrically released Star Wars films into 12 categories. We're going to be sending up their many wonderful performances and technical achievements. Ross, what's your opinion on award shows in general? Do you, do you care about the real Oscars? No. <laughs> but in that same vein, uh, I do understand why people would care. I mean, of course, I understand the benefits of, of accolades. I think in a lot of cases, when you look at the decision makers and accolades situ providing situations it can sometimes take away from really the meaning behind it, because it's like, well, why do those people necessarily get to decide what is something that is going to receive an objective title when it's clearly a subjective evaluation? Yes. Uh, but even with that, it's it's uh, I don't personally care, but I I, I certainly don't uh, begrudge those who do, uh, because I especially winning those is, uh, that's something that I mean if you're uh, going crazy because you've spent your entire life working uh, behind the scenes or in front of the camera and you're finally getting that that one chance. I mean, this is something you've probably thought about, so that's uh, deserves its its cred. Well, yeah, and in many cases, somebody who wins an Academy Award. However frivolous and and uh, arbitrary the giving out of gold statues might be to multimillionaire movie stars uh, and just like showbiz people in general, um, it doesn't necessarily mean because all that's true that that winner is not deserving of that award. But it's important to remember probably some other people were equally deserving of it. And that's, that's a conversation yeah. that kind of makes the Oscars fun. I'm somebody who loves the Oscars. And I also believe all that other stuff about it being kind of BS because it's like watching a sport. Yeah, absolutely. And in some cases, there are some sports where referees can have uh, a lot of things in the Olympics have judges mm -hmm. and that right there. There are some things you could say are technically, oh, that is technically and objectively perfect, but there is still a level of subjectivity in a lot of those things. And so you can't take that away from just kind of defining the way it is. And the Oscars have been around I mean, almost as long as movies. So uh, within a certain realm, I don't know my Oscars history, but it, it's something that is uh, the the big kahuna in, uh, in the film space. And so it's nice to see that Star Wars has been recognized in the past, but uh, for the most part, it has been uh, immensely snubbed. Oh yeah. And this is a film franchise that at least came on the scene 
uh, and made a bunch of racket because of how creatively and technically innovative it was. And there was some celebration of that, like right out the gate for Star Wars. But like you said, often like big franchise movies and um, action adventure movies do not get the the credit they're due. And so that's what we aim to discuss this evening. A couple of ground rules uh, in the interest of keeping it fresh. The same person or persons may not be nominated twice in the same category in our version of the Oscars tonight, which is limiting. That means there are going to be uh, expenses made and great uh, creative and technical achievements that are then overlooked, but that is just what we had to to settle with. Um, Write-ins are not permitted on the fly, meaning that the nominees that we have here are final, and as with real Oscars, uh, sometimes they don't reflect what you may think is correct, and you just kind of have to contend with that. Uh, We are going to announce the nominees for each category in chronological order by release date, so it doesn't, it's completely uh, otherwise um, uh, uh, obligatory, arbitrary, arbitrary. Uh, and then we're going to declare a winner based on certain reasoning, but we're also going to leave some room for discussing a plausible upset. I think you used the term dark horse. Uh, are you ready to get going with this thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also, in addition to the dark horse, there may be some that uh, there also could, you could say, uh, is the snub. We'll also include the snub as well, okay, the one sure. who... Maybe should have got, or at least should have maybe gotten the consideration uh, to be to be included in there as well. So you have all of the nominees in front of you, and you have all of the envelopes sealed and ready for your opening. But I am going to be approaching the categories uh, in an order that you have not been made privy to. So I'm going to keep you on your toes. We're going to begin with the award for best actor in a supporting role. The categories, uh, the nominees in this category include Sir Peter Cushing. In Star Wars, A New Hope. Billy D. Williams, The Empire Strikes Back. Ian McDermott, Revenge of the Sith. Oscar Isaac, The Force Awakens. And Donald Glover for Solo, A Star Wars Story. There are some some really interesting ones in this category. I'm glad you started with one this one because it's one where I think you can have, uh, from my perspective... I'm, I'm never going to be angry at you if you choose three of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, four of these I could even understand your case for. Uh, I really don't get, uh, and I can I can appreciate Donald Glover's performance, but I, I do not see it as being uh, one that stands as tall as the rest of them. Uh, and I also don't see Oscar Isaacs really as standing as tall as the rest of them either. And I really, I had to kind of litigate with myself whether or not I thought uh, Oscar Isaac's performance in The Force Awakens was a supporting role or a lead role. And that tends to be a blurred line with the real Academy Awards as well. But when I thought about it, he's he's really never a lead of any of the Star Wars movies. He just happens to be a scene stealer, especially in The Force Awakens. Oh, he was supposed to die in the first scene. He's, there's like a huge chunk of The Force Awakens that he's not in. Uh, Yeah, he definitely is supporting there. And to be honest, and I know based on your, the way you were describing it, you can't be nominated in the same category twice. But for that reason, I think potentially the biggest snub rate here is the original supporting actor, and that it would be Han Solo. Harrison Ford is Han Solo in A New Hope. Interesting. And I know we have another phenomenal A New Hope uh, choice here with Peter Cushing. And I think that's one that makes uh, a lot of sense. It wasn't the one that was then ended up being my pick. Uh, it was uh, it was my third of, of the top three. I think it's an excellent choice. Uh, Han Solo, though, I think that one, because it is 
such a leading supporting role. It's such a commanding secondary, but he is the second in that one more so than, and the second also in Return of the Jedi, where you could say he has a lead role in Empire. Yes. Uh, and in fact, we do say he has a lead role in Empire. <laughs> uh, but I would say that he would be one that would be a probably one of the bigger snubs in this category. Um, but my, I guess my winner would come down between Billy D. Williams and Ian McDiarmid. And I want to kind of know what your thoughts are uh, before uh, I say who uh, I went with. And I, I'd be, if you can sway me on Peter Cushing, then I, I'll listen. But good luck on the other two. Well, something I think that's remarkable about Billy D. Williams as, as Lando Calrissian in Empire Strikes Back is that he brings something new to Star Wars at the time, which is... Uh, a blurred morale because Star Wars in general being the hero's journey is all about good and evil and a pretty strict binary system of what a person's code of ethics are. You know, we have the like the ultimate uh, embodiment of evil in Darth Vader and in that initial Star Wars and then Luke Skywalker, scrappy farm boy who wants to save the princess. That's as heroic as you can be. And now here we have Lando, this guy who has a somewhat friendly connection to one of our heroes from the past, but very quickly he betrays our heroes, and yet by the end of the movie, you still perceive him as a generally decent person. And you add on that that Billy Dee Williams performed that character with so much pizzazz, it's very hard not to to give that a lot of credit. Now, on the other hand, Ian McDiarmid, we've often said, delivers one of the most proficient performances in any Star Wars movie, just in that it's so convincing. And here we have, again, that pure embodiment of evil. But Revenge of the Sith, his performance in that movie in particular, is striking because that's when that transition that kind of ties those first six movies all together uh, takes place for his character. And he kind of carries a lot of the weight, especially where the performance by Hayden Christensen is in certain places lacking. So I agree with you that it comes down to those two. Uh, and if it's not one, then it's the other. Would you like to award the Oscar? And the Oscar goes to Ian McDiarmid. I'm not too surprised. Congrats to Ian McDiarmid. Yes, and when it came down to it, uh, I think you highlighted it extremely well. Uh, the defining factor for this one is, for me, that this should be so unbelievably silly. There's nothing that you could say on the page that he has to do that isn't so over the top, ridiculous, pure evil, eye rollingly, clearly the big guy, bad guy pulling the strings, the puppeteer. Yet he does it with such nuance mm -hmm. and conviction and commitment to the character and the ability to see, steal the scene, but also lift everybody else up within the scene. He has great chemistry with Hayden Christensen, the way that he moves, the saunters that Palpatine does, the, the quick shift that you can just see in his smiling and his demeanor and his speech patterns uh, and how it shifts right before he becomes uh, the evil dark side showing emperor. Uh, and then when he becomes that caricature, it is a little bit over the top and it becomes a little bit sillier, but his commitment doesn't go down even in the slightest. And it's necessary and holds strong through till the end of the film where it makes you feel without even a shadow of a doubt, oh, it's Palpatine and Vader. 
Right. And that's what you need. And it really, really strongly connects that because at the start of this film, it's clear, it's the evolution of Senator Palpatine. But at the end of the film, it's the kind of reverse engineered version of what we know to be our evil, disgusting, shriveled emperor. And so he gets it for that. Uh, Billy D, of course, everything you said was incredible. Uh, Han having kind of that duality as well. And then Billy D doing it kind of like just taking it up a notch and showing mm -hmm. the fact that I'm not going to leave you high and dry. I'm going to straight up sell you out right. <laughs> and then turn back and show that I'm a good guy. Uh, but that uh, in the end, uh, the, the, the overall um, nuance and power from unlimited power from Ian McDermott got him the, got him the ticket. Moving on to the second award of the night, this goes to achievement in voiceover-only performance. This is kind of a tricky one, and it's something that I created. It doesn't exist at the actual Academy Awards. Um, it's also important to note that one of our nominees in this category, and there are only three, one of them is better known in Star Wars for, in fact, performing in costume. But because it was a limited category, uh, we have included the following nominees for best voiceover-only performance. Anthony Daniels in The Phantom Menace, Frank Oz in The Empire Strikes Back, and James Earl Jones in The Empire Strikes Back. And this is an interesting category because I think I know who you're most inclined to rule out first, um, but the other two are, are tough to deliberate. I'm curious to know who you think I should rule out first uh, because... I have a very clear one, but it shouldn't be clear in my opinion. Interesting, because, I mean, obviously C-3PO uh, is, I mean, it very well could have just been a voiceover-only performance for all of Star Wars, except it's it's so well-known that not only is he in that, that tin can suit for most that's of the... the reason Yes, that's I, why. I, never mind. Yeah. That's why you had to choose the Phantom Menace. Correct. Okay, never mind. I, for, I forgot because that's the only one that he's technically voiceover. Okay, that does make a little bit more sense. Never mind. Sorry. Right. Because uh, I was thinking, like, it's just such a damn weird choice, Colin. <laughs> he's otherwise, of course, uh, CGI'd in the Phantom Menace, and then he's in a he's in a costume otherwise, and so it kind of doesn't count. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that he's deserving of this Oscar for The Phantom Menace or, in fact, for any C-3PO performance when put up against James Earl Jones and Frank Oz. But uh, it is a voiceover performance in The Phantom Menace. And by the way, I think it's a fine one. I think it is a really good one. Yeah. I actually do think that C-3PO in A New Hope makes this a conversation if he counts in the category. Yeah, he didn't qualify. I it, he, he didn't qualify, and that makes complete sense because you just the kind of the qualifier at the start. I got a little bit confused, but yes, that makes complete sense. Uh, but if it were the Phantom Men, sorry, if it were a New Hope, I would think he would absolutely be up there with uh, Frank Oz and James Earl Jones for the way he's kind of guiding us on this journey to start and being really the character who speaks the most in the first half hour of all of this and really kind of starts us on that journey and also says the first line and and all that but uh from his performance in phantom menace it's his probably his most limited role and it's he's got a couple jokes but it's mostly around jar jar he doesn't have a ton of interaction with r2d2 and so it's it's one of the the lesser 3po performances along with attack of the clones and so yes of course james earl jones and frank oz are incredible here uh one of these two george lucas tried to get an oscar nomination for uh, and it was not James Earl Jones. 
he was unsuccessful in trying to get the Oscar nom for right. Frank Oz. Um, but I get the the case behind it. Uh, you have so much silliness, this Grover slash Miss Piggy uh, in this little frog-like guy. And then he goes so silly at the start, uh, mine! And he's just, he makes no sense. And then it's this like these little grunts and having to speak half backwards and then going into this kind of serene speech pattern when speaking with Obi-Wan, but maintaining this grumpiness. And it's just a really impressive performance. I mean, we all know how much I love Yoda and Yoda is a really cool character, but Frank Oz deserves all of the credit for that. In addition to being the puppeteer, the acting performance that you're able to get so much belief out of a bloody puppet. Mm -hmm. It isn't a guy in a suit. It is just a puppet. And it's not another guy in the suit. Right. It's just a puppet. And that is really incredible. And although this is for the voiceover work and not necessarily all the other intangibles that Frank Oz was doing, that's something that he's able to speak to Luke and speak to Ben differently, but be crazy and be smart. And so it, it is a very impressive performance. James Earl Jones has the most iconic lines ever. He gets to say, <laughs> he gets, he, he knew the line, all of the, the key lines in, in Empire, whereas not everybody else did. Empire is clearly the film where Vader shines the most. Yes. Uh, he is able to command well, so much fear within the Imperial uh, ranks and the the killing and doing it with a, the subtle sense of humor and being just very overtly evil, but in a, such a badass way, similar to the way uh, Ian McDiarmid executes it in Revenge of the Sith. Um, but with all those things said, uh, do you have any kind of arguments for these two before I reveal my winner? No, I really think you said it quite well. And obviously it's kind of a tricky category in terms of who qualifies for what, but we've often made an effort to celebrate Darth Vader for the many people who have brought that character to life. It's very, it's very understandable that James Earl Jones gets the most credit for that performance. And arguably that is of course the most iconic part of the performance, mm -hmm. but there are other people who help to bring the menace of that character uh, and and the gravitas of that character to life takes nothing away from James Earl Jones's incredible vocal performance. But what you said about Frank Oz having been essentially all of the creation of Yoda has to account for his deservingness for for an Oscar. And so, without jumping the gun, I think that's probably who I think we're we're leaning towards. But you have final say, so the Oscar goes to. The Oscar goes to Frank Oz. Right, I figured it had to be, and you're such a Yoda stan. Yeah, I really had to on this one. And for every reason I said, uh, it was a tough one to not give it to Jambril Jones for the for the work that he does. Uh, and I mean, you could almost do an inverse on this category and do the best uh, non-vocal performance. And David Prowse would also be up there with incredible work. Uh, but yeah, Frank Oz, it's, I, I do think he probably, I don't know who was up for supporting that year, but I'd be shocked if they have a more iconic role than Yoda. Yeah, no way. No way. <laughs> yeah. Just impossible. Moving on to our third category, which is for achievement in costume design. 
So uh, this is kind of a, a different thing to consider when we're talking about Star Wars, but we're talking about we're celebrating uh, the quality of the costumes that are on screen, the ingenuity of the creation of those aesthetics for the characters, both in terms of clothing and just in terms of the body of perhaps an alien character who's not necessarily clothed so much as wearing a full body suit that counts as a costume. The nominees in the category of best costume design are John Malo for The Empire Strikes Back, Trisha Bigger for The Phantom Menace, and Michael Kaplan and Glenn Dillon for The Force Awakens. So I'm really curious to see what your thoughts are here because we've got uh, three different trilogies represented in these nominees. This is a really interesting one because you've got John Malo who basically represents the first two. So he did, I believe he did both A New Hope and uh, yeah, he did A New Hope and Phantom Menace. You're correct. Um, but that was, to be honest, I mean, as much as they define the era, Return of the Jedi, and I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, the costume designer, might be the one that stands out the most from the original trilogy when you consider okay. Jabba's palace and when you consider... Um, Ewoks. The Ewoks. Yeah. It, it, and the like the, the different uniforms that you have with uh, the ponchos. You get Luke's classic black with the white flap. Uh, Scout Troopers. Prince, Scout Troopers, Princess Leia in the gold bikini. Bausch. You get a, a bunch of really classic uh, costumes. But there's no way you can undeni- you can take back the fact that the original design for a, 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 like the classic Jedi robes, Darth Vader's costume, uh, every outfit Leia wears in the in uh, A New Hope and Empire. I mean, John Malo, you you give it for the body of work almost. So he's kind of a tough one in that regard. But then the fact that the Phantom Menace is able to kind of bring all this back around in a clean, sleek way but also Naboo and all of the Queen's wardrobe oh, yeah. and how that just kind of blows like the entire galaxy wide open. And you see in the Senate, all of the different species from all the different planets. That's incredible. The amount of work that would have gone into that is absolutely insane. And the fact that you're going to these different planets, you've got uh, the uniforms for the Nemoidians. Interestingly enough, the Nemoidian design uh, was initially designed similar to what the um the geonosians design was so they would have looked like geonosians but dressed like nymoidians okay which is kind of a weird thing to think of Uh, i have no idea what they would have talked like i'm hoping a little less racist yeah (laughs) but however they would have talked it would have allowed us to make the connection a little bit easier because it took me a long time before i realized that battle droids are designed to just look like robot Geonosians. Oh, okay. And That's so cool. It it kind of makes sense. And yeah. they were the ones who built them, so it makes sense. Um, but you would have been able to see that had the Nemordians been the Geonosians. It would have just been a little bit of a clearer thing, I think. Yeah, tighter. Uh, and also because it would have made them more of a civilized species as opposed to being just bugs in a big arena. Right. Um, and then you have that same sort of methodology of bringing it back around once again with the force awakens and the force awakens has Maz Kanata's castle. Uh, and then the first order doing the stormtrooper design in that just slight differentiated way, but it looks sleek and great. Kylo, Kylo Ren's Ren. helmet. Absolutely. That's huge. 
Yeah. I mean, so it's a tough one. I like the fact that you did kind of pick one from each of the eras. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, I don't know who did costume on solo or rogue one. Um, but I wouldn't have given it to either of those anyway. Uh, I think you, you did pick good choices here. I would be curious. I want to know who did costume for uh, return of the Jedi. Cause there's easily the, the snub for this category. Uh, the dark horse. I don't know. I don't, I, let's uh, who do you think? What's, what are your takes on this final category before we uh, give a, a victor? Well, I think I'd have to first eliminate The Force Awakens, if only because it had so much to draw upon, and essentially they were they were creating an homage rather than something from scratch, the way the other two eras of, of Star Wars creators seem to be. Um, however, like I said, I think Kylo Ren's mask is an achievement in its own, because it's trying to recapture oh, yeah. something aesthetically and atmospherically that would have been very very hard to do uh i think uh the first vision of ray uh in a face covering when we see her for the very first time i think that was like a really cool visual um the new stormtroopers costumes in fact they play a big role in the force awakens finn and poe sharing a jacket and of course the removal of the stormtrooper helmet like that does matter uh structurally to the story maybe a little bit more so than were the costumes themselves innovative so i do think it's between the other two and i think it's really tough because i think empire strikes back has better costumes than a new hope but I do think, of course, they were less innovative. So we're kind of weighing two major factors. And then The Phantom Menace gets kind of mocked for a lot of different things, not the least of which is Queen Amidala's ridiculous hairstyle and, and, and clothing. But it is something you remember. It's something you'd never seen before. And it's quite intellectually based on historical and cultural um, uh, inspirations. And that that is... Uh, pretty fascinating in the art form of costume design. And so I think there's a real case to be made for for both prequel and original trilogy costume celebrations. There absolutely is. And this was one of the absolute hardest ones. And so it was one that you could have a bit of the dark horse, I think, with uh, Trisha Bigger, and I think the more obvious choice with John Malo. Uh, but the Oscar goes to... John Mala. I'm not too surprised that you said that. And like you said, he did he did a lot to create the visual of the universe. And that's it's kind of one of those career Oscars. Like it's not impossible Glenn Close might win this weekend. Sometimes you get celebrated for a thing that is more than just the thing you're nominated for tonight. Yeah. And, and I think the, the one thing I also wanted to mention on here is that we do talk about how structurally sound The Empire Strikes Back is as a film in the way that it's divided up. But I think that's also important in the way that they do it with costumes. They clearly show phases of the films with the way that the characters transition their costumes. Luke has his Hoth outfit. He has his pilot outfit. He has his training on Dagobah outfit. He has his fighting Vader outfit. Uh, he also has his back to tank diaper. Uh, like that is a lot of outfits <laughs> sure, yeah. for our main character. And then you have Leia's assortment of outfits and being able to build off of the high bar set in A New Hope. So uh, as much as I actually really wanted to give this one to Trisha Bigger and I would want to give them both uh, the recognition, 
uh, it had to go for jo to John Malo for, like you said, kind of the obvious reasons. I think you made a really good case also for the snub in Return of the Jedi. John Malo did not work in the costumes of that movie, and so I figured I'd just look it up really quickly and give uh, a little bit of uh, attention to Nilo Rodi Yamero and Aggie Gerard Rogers, who collectively did the costumes for that movie and, of course, did a wonderful nice. job. Moving awesome. on to our fourth category, which is Best Actress in a Supporting Role. So this is also really fun for all the reasons that the best actor in a supporting role category is fun because like it's these slightly less obvious performances. However, female performances in Star Wars are a lot uh, further and fewer between. So uh, this is kind of an interesting category. I'm going to read the yeah. nominees. Nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Kira Knightley, The Phantom Menace, Pernilla August, The Phantom Menace, Gwendolyn Christie, The Force Awakens, Laura Dern for The Last Jedi, and Carrie Russell for The Rise of Skywalker. Notable that there are no nominations for the original trilogy in here. There are not a lot of women in those movies. Unfortunately, not. There's, I think, Mon Mothma might be the only person who could even qualify. That's and a good one. One sentence is not a whole lot. No, but honestly, I, I hadn't thought of that, and it, I might have snuck it in instead of, oh, well, I know who, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one was the easiest one for me of all of them. Okay. Uh, by maybe a wide margin. Let's talk about it. Uh, yeah, it was. It, it, there are characters that connect. There are characters that don't connect. There are characters that are um, fleshed out and full, and then there are characters who are not. And then there are characters who are intentionally not. Uh, and so that's what really made this one kind of a, of, of a clear answer for me. So, I mean, if we want to go through them, we have uh, Carrie Russell, that the character doesn't matter. No, that's who I uh, cut out first. That's who I kind of wish that I could replace with Mon Mothma. But I don't even know Mon Mothma's actress name, so it's obviously not, not in my heart. But I, I was so supremely disappointed by Carrie Russell's weird Power Ranger character in Episode Nine. It just, it doesn't fit and it's kind of, I don't like, I, I don't like the delivery of a lot of the lines and I don't like the, uh, I, I do like kind of the, the, the speechless uh, head banter that they do in the final scene between her and Poe. However, I hate all of the dialogue between the two of them. Right. And, and it's just like uh, something about s sky trash or and uh, oh sorry and it's like hey hey and babu frick shows up which is great but uh yeah that is a weird performance that doesn't really fit uh laura dern gives a good performance yeah i like laura uh, dern in everything and so obviously it's a more problematic component of that movie the last jedi but i actually don't yeah. have major problems with with holdo as a character um and i like laura dern in basically everything she does yeah, I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Holdo, but I'm also not a fan of Poe in that movie. And I think the two of them act like absolute buffoons. <laughs> uh, and so when you have one person refusing to tell the most influential member of your very, very, very small military or band of rebel fighters what the plan is as you're all dying, okay, you're probably not a good leader. Right. Uh, but also if you then plan a coup, you're probably not a good one either. Right. Um, and you'll probably need a little bit more than, you know, 
murdering 90% of your rebel mates to, to learn that you, you, Maybe I know how to do it now. I know how to be a leader now. Okay, so but this isn't that didn't these really aren't, work. These aren't issues you have with Laura Dern, who's the one no, who's no, no. up for the for the Oscar here. No, no, no. But that's what I'm saying is so she's playing in a minefield. And so that's what makes it really difficult. But the character varies between likable and unlikable. When she's on the screen with Leia, I actually do feel like, okay, these two know each other. These two have gone way back. And they have that very brief conversation. And it makes sense, but she doesn't make sense to be part of a military at all. And the character, it just, she doesn't portray it in a commanding enough way. The character was written very differently in the original script. And then Ryan Johnson had to kind of reshape the delivery when it just wasn't working during filming. And so it was also written in a different way during the novelizations too. Yes. This character, all I'm trying to say is designed not to work almost. Yeah. And so it's really hard for Laura Dern to like, she doesn't do a bad job, but she almost has no chance. An interesting distinction distinction of, of Laura Dern right now is she's nominated in our silly little version of best actress in a supporting role. And she happens to be the reigning best actress in a supporting role at the Academy Awards at the time of this recording. And so um, she's an Oscar winner in real life. She deserved that Oscar. I actually think she does quite a fine job in Star Wars. Um, what about Gwendolyn Christie in The Force Awakens? She does a good job in The Force Awakens. It's uh, just kind of a dumb role. Uh, it uh, it ends in a very abrupt way. It's funny with the trash compactor stuff, but the sort of you won't get away with this is a little bit Tilted. Uh, it's strong at the start, though. Uh, she really does prevent, present a menacing uh, potential foil for Finn. Uh, I think that she did a good enough job that I would have wanted to see the character continue uh, and not die in The Last Jedi and so that we could maybe get a little bit more payoff because you do feel like there's a little bit more there, that there is a, a, a bit of experience behind the bite in her voice. Uh, but that's about all I can say because that's about all we know uh, from Phasma if you haven't read the book, which is apparently excellent, but it is one of the, the gaps in my Star Wars reading knowledge. So You Won't Get Away With This is a great way to sum up the last time we see her, at least in The Force Awakens. And that that really just kind of makes her seem a little bit like a Scooby-Doo villain, doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. She's just very two-dimensional. Absolutely. The kind of thing where Ian McDiarmid would absolutely has lines way sillier and had to deliver them and was somehow able to do it even though he made it even sillier than it was on the page but that's because he just went all all in now pernilla august i'm a giant fan of and and maybe in part Mm -hmm. because this is an actress i've literally never seen in another thing ever uh and i think it's easy for her to be overlooked as an important part of Star Wars as Shmi Skywalker because it's really not like a sexy role. It's it's not she doesn't get to do any action. It's not uh emphatic or fun even. But it is quite emotional and resonant. And so I I actually think that she does a lovely job in The Phantom Menace, Pernilla August. Yeah, I mean, she is the the slaughtered slave mother of one of the galaxy's biggest murderers. Yeah. Not a sexy role. Nope. Nope. <laughs> but an absolutely great performance. And she comes in, like you said, she's a nobody, but she has this very soft presence. She's clearly a warm, kind person, has great chemistry 
with Liam Neeson. Yes. And they're able to really build off of that to make the scenes seem very like a family sitting down for dinner. And it's like, the, it's the first time they're meeting and you've got like Jar Jar's the dog and uh, they're just explaining the world to Anakin, but bright little Anakin's kind of biting back. And, and Shmi knows, she, she knows what she has to do for her son and what her son's capable of doing. And you can see that Sophie's choice conundrum within Pernilla August. She's, she, she, he can help you. He was meant to help you. Um, like she dies inside when he goes out and does those things. And you can really see, you can, you can hear that in her voice. You can hear how hard it is for her to be the mother of someone who's deserves a better life. And then to also see him get that better life and to not show him, but to subtly, just subtly show the audience how crushing that is for her, of course, how it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to her, but that it is her whole world that just walks away from her. Now, I think it would be easy to scoff at Keira Knightley's performance as something worth recognizing at all in The Phantom Menace, but I also actually think that she pulled off something kind of remarkable in her ability to disappear in this movie. She's right there on screen as much as Natalie Portman is, almost. Maybe not quite as much, but like, this is like a little baby girl somehow convincing you she's a grown woman in front of your eyes. And a lot of that is a credit to, you know, the extraordinary uh, costume work of Trisha Bigger and the the makeup work, uh, the makeup artist who who worked alongside uh, Trisha Bigger. But like, I, I think that the, that the, there's something odd about her, her manner of speech, Kira Knightley as uh, the, the decoy Amidala. I don't think it's worth writing that performance off. No, I wouldn't write it off. The The issue is that it is intended to blend in and she's being a little bit more of, of a mirror and the characters speak in this stilted way to intentionally align themselves a little bit more. It's a little bit easier, Colin, for you and I to, well, you and I are a really bad example because a lot of people think we sound alike. Yeah. <laughs> but if like me and uh, like Gilbert Gottfried wanted to sound alike, I don't know, how about we both do a, a, a standard British accent terribly, and then we'll probably sound a little bit more alike than if we're trying to hit it in any other way. And so it's, I don't know, but like, that's the way in which they went about it, because you're not going to find this equilibrium where they're able no. to perfectly impersonate one another, but they really do play off of one another. And I think that's a really important thing, because I, I, uh, and maybe sh showing my hand a little bit early here, but I think this is uh, Natalie Portman's best performance in The Phantom Menace by uh, a, a large margin, actually. And I think that the two of them do rely a lot on one another. And I don't think you can necessarily take that away from either of them because you're, you believe it. Right. Uh, I know I, I can, I, I don't remember very well, but I can remember being surprised. That's all I can remember about it, but I can remember the first time seeing it, having the same expression Anakin does have on his face, like, huh? Really? Okay. I didn't know that. But when she realized I am Queen Amidala, and it's like, okay, you just stepped in and swapped it out, but your decoy was pretty convincing. All right. We're talking about Best Supporting Actress, and the Oscar goes to? Pernilla August. Yeah, I think that I think that maybe not everybody... I'm kind of proud of us, because I don't think everybody would... would arrive at this conclusion and yet I'm sure it's the correct one. 
Oh, it definitely is. Yeah. This was one that we, I know we chatted about briefly the other night, just uh, I saw as, and I mentioned was, was a slam dunk. <laughs> it is for sure. Okay. It, this wouldn't be the Oscars if we weren't running incredibly long. So let's move on to our next category, which is for yeah, best, best production design. Okay. So, uh, we're talking about set pieces, uh, general tone of the film, aesthetic atmosphere of the movie. And our nominees in Best Production Design are Leslie Dilley and John Barry for A New Hope, Norman Reynolds for The Empire Strikes Back, Gavin Boquette for The Phantom Menace, Rick Carter and Darren Guilford for The Force Awakens, and Doug Chang and Neil Lamont for Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So this is a really of, interesting. This is an interesting category because I think production design, for those of us who don't work in that particular discipline, seems like kind of an ethereal, conceptual thing that we can only muse upon. Mm. This is, and, and that's absolutely right. It's it's a it's a really tough one. You have to. I mean, I know a little bit about some of this stuff because I know some of the behind the scenes things, and so when you find out my winner, you'll know a little bit to a degree why, um, but, or unless you convince me otherwise, but all of these are really, really impressive because oh, yeah. like we said before, it's a little bit about recapturing aesthetics, but then redefining new ones, finding that lived in vibe that is familiar, but also something otherworldly and that you've never seen before. And so, I mean, Production design is one of the things that makes Star Wars Star Wars. Yes. It's one of the most fundamentally important things and something that can really stand out as just not being good. And when you look at, uh, I mean, it's unfinished, raw, it's it's not fair to evaluate, but what the ABC Star Wars show potentially could have looked like, uh, it, it wasn't good. And it, the production design wouldn't have been able to have the budget to achieve it. And when you look at what you can do with things like the volume now, it's really incredible. And so um, you have A New Hope and Empire from the original trilogy. Um, they, I mean, A New Hope is pretty clear. You've got the Death Star. You've got Mos Eisley. You've got all of Tatooine. You've got the Lars Homestead. Um, and that right there, you've got Yavin 4, Masasi Temple. Uh, but the Death Star, I mean, that is its own, the just sterile hallways and uh, the inside of the Falcon. It's just, it's so iconic. Tatooine in general, you can say. everything about Tatooine is so foreign and, and alien. Like the, the creation of that as a, a set piece is extraordinary in all of its many forms in the original trilogy. And then similarly, the production design of Rogue One is such a tremendous achievement because they were able to mm. recapture not just the visuals but the feeling and that was a hundred percent their job and it was impossible and they made magic happen and uh they, they like that that if time travel exists that's how <laughs> you know through rogue one a star wars story yeah it was so impressive and then scarif is also so bloody cool, so cool. and you bounce and you have uh darth vader's castle and it's just, yeah, it is a very impressive, uh, and you're bouncing between a lot of different planets in that film. So there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly to the full extent um, or how many, uh, the, the blue screen usage versus practical on this one. Um, but this was such a, a nightmare behind the scenes as well to have it be such a beautiful film 
is something that is is an achievement in its own right as well. Now I'm going to jump the gun and just say flat out, I think I would, if I were the one choosing, I think I'd give it to Gavin Boquette, The Phantom Menace. And that might be a generational thing because of what was something I'd never seen before in a movie. But if there's something you cannot knock about Star Wars Episode One, it is the beauty of the visuals in this film. Everything from uh, Gungan City to the streets of Naboo, inside the palace, obviously the reactor room where the Duel of the Fates takes place, um, the pod race, for Christ's sake, this whole new version of, of Tatooine. To me, it's quite... Uh, it's my favorite set design. Exactly. To me, it's quite an easy decision that it's that it's taken this uh, this mood that we've seen in movies before and just blown it up to this whole new concept. My God, I didn't say uh, Coruscant and the and the Jedi Temple. Like that's that is incredibly moving to a person who already feels like they understand what Star Wars looks like, and this is that, and yet you've never seen it before, and so. Um, that's why I would certainly put it ahead of The Force Awakens, which is nominated in this category, and, and, and achieved the same thing, I just think to a lesser extent than The Phantom Menace. What do you think? I, I think those are uh, absolutely fantastic points. And even on The Empire Strikes Back, you have a lot of those early uh, achievements being made, and then you're doing this in frigid temperatures. Echo Base is so bloody so cool. cool. Oh, yeah. Dagobah and Yoda's hut like that is the dark side cave like these are just this is iconic imagery you get cloud city you get the the three just very clean visuals of what empire strikes back is and I mentioned this before on costumes and it just it, it does kind of permeate throughout the film you're able to so clearly understand where you are in this story uh, by the scene around you, whether it's the the city in the clouds, uh, the grungy swamp, or the pristine snowy Norway, and so it is uh, an achievement across the board. And this was another extremely, extremely hard one, in my opinion. And the Oscar for best production design in a Star Wars movie goes to Gavin Bouquet for the Phantom Menace. We agree. Yes, yeah, we do. Wow, TPM actually won uh, a Recorder 66 Oscar. Who would have thunk? I think it I think it deserves it. And I think yeah. this comes from so much of the difficulty that was faced in the original trilogy and the learnings that George Lucas had from that. And then also the challenge that he then put out to the rest of Lucasfilm to do something that was impossible. Yes, they did literally the impossible in this film. Now that was done in a lot of these films, but the CGI work, as much as maybe people don't think it ages that well, it sure as shit does in a lot of places. Agreed. And the creation of so many of these worlds, like you said, I think Coruscant's the one that's that's seals it yeah uh, the jedi temple in particular i think it's the one that, that seals it because it's something that is there is nothing like that in the original trilogy no, it's perfect. absolutely nothing like it and to even uh choose italy as a set uh is so foreign to what was chosen in the original trilogy but to do that and to be able to construct these uh sets and these scenes in a way that still felt very star wars is such a feat and so that's where I got the Oscar. 
All right, moving on to what is, in fact, my favorite category of categories at the real Oscars, which is best screenplay. Of course, uh, everything except for Star Wars A New Hope is technically an adapted screenplay from the original Star Wars, and so we're just going to discuss our our favorite screenplay or what we think is the best screenplay in Star Wars. Full disclosure, this is the one category in our show tonight uh, where we break our own rule and nominate the same person uh, multiple times in the category. There's just no other way to do it, given that so few people have written Star Wars movies or been the lead writer on a Star Wars movie. Uh, nevertheless, we have five nominees for Best Screenplay, and they are Episode 4, A New Hope, Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, Episode 7, The Force Awakens, and Episode 8, The Last Jedi. Thoughts? Uh, I, found th- I found this would be one of the easier ones as well. Okay. Uh, and I think it's you can find strengths and flaws in all of these, um, but uh, there is one of them where it's really hard to find flaws. Agreed. Really, 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 really hard. And when you look at the kind of the strengths and and the flaws of all of them, uh, you're able to see a lot of really impressive recurring themes. Uh, You're able to see some better dialogue in some of them than other ones. Uh, you're able to see some excellent twists, changing of pace, mirroring, and that's what's great in Star Wars. You get all like all of these across the board. Like Revenge of the Sith, they do a lot of clear attempts to try and mirror uh, a few beats from Empire, and to just kind of flip a lot of them on their head from Return of the Jedi by having everything go to shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have so much you need to cram into such a small amount of time. It's really quite impressive what they do in the screenplay on Revenge of the Sith. Uh, are these the, the right of- nominees for this category? Or if you're going to break it down to five, are these the b- five best screenplays in Star Wars? I don't know. Um, I'm just going to do a quick thought through. And there's, yes. Yes, they are. Yeah, because it's not Phantom Menace or Attack of the Clones. It's not Rogue One, which no. has pacing issues. It's not Solo. It's not Rise of Skywalker, for goodness sake. And, no. And, uh, and it's not uh, Return of the Jedi, which is lovely, but has pacing issues as well. Yeah, and I actually, and I and I think um, I would take A New Hope out pretty quick as well. Um, Here's where you and I back. really differ. I mean, it, there's a real case to be made for, uh, or there's an argument anyway that, an adapted mm-hmm. screenplay can never be as good as an or, uh, an original screenplay. Like, um, I'm somebody who likes the first Godfather better than the second. Both of those are, in fact, adapted screenplays. But I, I, I like the original idea. It's hard for me to argue against it. Yeah, that's that's fully understandable. The thing for me with this one is that A New Hope is, uh, or Star Wars as it was at the time, was a rare package of requiring all of its parts it was far more than the sum of its parts and that was the thing that truly set it apart uh you have a screenplay or a script i should say where there's things written you just can't even say the dialogue is so clunky (laughs) true as they as they say uh but you have this hero's journey this straightforward uh yet iconic uh 
screen, like just general plot of a character. And you have these weird droid side characters, the originality that comes from it. I, I can't argue that at all. But I think in the argument that we're putting them all in here uh, to be evaluated against one another, I have to be able to view them in with, without too much reliance on the original as the only one that can count. And I believe when you look at some of the, maybe some dialogue writing, some uh, quick ways out in uh, the way that the screenplay may be done, A New Hope is excellent. Of course it is, but I don't know if it can be better than one of the other ones here, for example. Well, and this is going to surprise nobody. So why don't we just cut to the chase and the Oscar for best screenplay goes to the empire strikes back. And in spite of what I just said about adapted and original, I mean, you're correct. This is a much more proficient screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan. Uh, It features uh, one of the most iconic movie twists of all time. Some of the best movie arguing I've ever seen. Some of the most romantic stuff I've ever seen in an action movie. Um, this movie, this screenplay really breathes so much eternal life into Star Wars. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, and it's the same way that if you view that original trilogy as a whole uh, and not necessarily viewing them in their kind of singular eras so that you can still view each as its own original IP per se. Uh, yeah, the screenplay on Empire just is the best one. It yes. just the dialogue's the best. The story is the best. It's got the best twist. Uh, the Last Jedi, I think, is another excellent one. I think The Force Awakens is as well. The Force Awakens uh, is a little too derivative of A New Hope. Yep. Not in a way that I dislike. I I like a, a, the heavy poetry in that, and I think it's very fitting. But not in a way that you could give it uh, the prize here. And The Last Jedi has... Uh, I actually think probably some lines that are worse than some of the new hopes, worst lines. So as much as it does have some really phenomenal uh, change of pace, uh, storytelling ideas in star Wars, uh, it also has some, some pretty big holes. Whereas empire, like we kind of said, it, it really doesn't have many and you're nitpicking when you pick them. Agreed. Our next category is another one that I've invented in the interest of celebrating some stuff that otherwise wouldn't have its place at a traditional Oscars. Um, And it's also kind of different from our other categories. It's called Best Foreign Language Character. And so in this case, we're actually not going to be awarding the artist, but the art itself, uh, simply because the three nominees in this category, uh, the degrees of their performance just vary so much that it's like comparing apples and oranges a little bit too much. And so we're really just going to celebrate the character and their impact on Star Wars overall. So the nominees for best foreign language character, which is to say a character that doesn't speak basic or what we call as English, include R2-D2 in A New Hope, Chewbacca in A New Hope, and Jabba the Hutt in Return of the Jedi. Does this uh, category make sense to you, to, to my explanation for why it, oh, yeah. it was chosen that way? Yeah, absolutely. I love this category. I think it's a really smart one. I, and I think I, I think one of the things I hate the most about this category is the fact that there aren't more. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is something that Star Wars has strayed from, and it's been a mistake. I mean, you have these great characters who were introduced in the original trilogy, and now 
these are still the best foreign language characters. Everybody has to speak basic. Give me some subtitles. I already watched Star Wars with the subtitles. I want like I want people to read like give me something ridiculous it's interesting. Uh, these characters are i was gonna say it's, awesome. it's interesting you mentioned subtitles i hadn't really occurred i hadn't it hadn't really occurred to me that that is a a qualifier in this category that jabba the hut usually gets subtitles when he's on screen usually and yeah. r2 and chewbacca never ever once do but usually they no. play off a character who understands them well enough that it's exposed for us, the audience. And that doesn't necessarily impact your your feelings about the character. Um, but it does say something about the performance of either Peter Mayhew or Kenny Baker or whomever might be involved in their ability to convey some kind of emotion. I mean, in other cases, it's just a machine like R2-D2, those beeps are, that's just like a sound engineer doing it, but it's but it's done quite effectively. And as I look at these nominees, which frankly I chose myself, I, I can't help but think that I I didn't make a, I can't help but think that I made a mistake uh, in, in in one of the choices. And I guess I won't say it until you've awarded the, the Oscar, but... Uh, uh, it's between R2-D2, A New Hope, Chewbacca, A New Hope, and Jabba the Hutt, Return of the Jedi. Would you like to give the Oscar? Uh, I'm curious to know what you think your mistake is. Is it because they're both in a, two characters in A New Hope? or That's is not it, the mistake uh, in particular, but that therein lies the mistake. Do you want me to say it ahead of time? Yeah. I, th- I, I, I think I screwed up. I think Chewbacca is much better in Empire Strikes Back. All the Cloud yeah. City stuff is really good. Although, conversely, the Trash Compactor stuff is really good. But that's not really his scene. It is, but yeah, I would, I would, I would agree that Empire. We can even just say that you meant Empire. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> uh, does it matter? It won't. It won't matter. <laughs> okay, who's uh, the Oscar going to then? The Oscar is going to the little can, the little garbage can. Of course, could. of course, of course, it's going to R two D two. The man supplies Luke with his saber. The man keeps three PO in check. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. He reminds Luke with that message in Last Jedi. Uh, but it all starts in A New Hope when he's just ranting with 3PO as they're trying to get off the Tantive Four and they're, they take the escape pod down to Tatooine and they get in the argument and then they go their separate directions. And it's just so, oh no, are they going to be okay? And R2 gets kind of like, it's in this like weird cavernous area where like the Jawas are like lurking behind them and you feel like you get the, ooh. And it's just the the scared R2 and the way that Kenny Baker can have him hop back and forth uh, when you can have him controlled by like Granty Mahara or someone and, or whether it's gonna be full CGI R2 and he's like lighting a bunch of super battle droids on fire. R2 comes in and saves the day. Yes. Uh, Chewbacca is the one of the best friends anyone in the galaxy could ever ask for. Uh, but R2 is one of the best things that ever happened to the galaxy. Bingo. Yeah. Uh, so that's a pretty hard one to, to compete against. And Jabba the Hutt is a cool effing character. Sure. Oh, yeah. One of the coolest bad guys in Star Wars. And really a kind of bad guy that I want to see come back, if not just directly come back. Give, like, give me Jabba the Hutt in Book of Boba Fett, yeah. or uh, well, he'll almost definitely be in Book of Boba Fett, but probably just for like five seconds in the background. As a flashback <laughs> um, of some kind? As, as a flashback, yeah. yeah. Um, 
most likely it will, things in that were going to take place right after uh, we lose Jabba the Hutt. Uh, but I mean, we need more huts, and uh, Jabba, of course, is uh, is the king. Okay, but R two gets the Oscar. Moving on to our next category, which is best visual effects. Not to be confused with our last category that talked about visuals. Uh, this is an achievement in convincing uh, practical visuals, um, as well as CGI and green screens, which, of course, those two different versions of of visual effects are used intermittently at different times through different generations of Star Wars. Our nominees in the categories in the category for best visual effects include A New Hope, The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and The Rise of Skywalker. Now, interestingly, two oft-maligned Star Wars films appear in this category uh, and, and movies that even you and I... Uh, don't necessarily give uh, a whole lot of patience to, and yet their visual effects are not among their their are not among their 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 worst assets. Yeah, that's true. There's some interesting. I, I'm not sure on this one. I mean, I do. Uh, if you're referring to Attack of the Clones, I definitely think I like Attack of the Clones a lot more than you do. Um, I think on some days of the week, I like Attack of the Clones more than Phantom Menace. Mm -hmm. uh, but Attack of the Clones and Phantom Menace. I wouldn't have put on this. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have made them in my top five. I don't Interesting. think. Interesting. Okay. Um, I think I maybe would have put uh, Revenge of the Sith and uh, The Last Jedi as my other two in the top five. But they're both incredible uh, in the achievements that they have in some areas. Uh, Camino is still incredible. Uh, it still looks awesome. Yes. There are some things though in Attack of the Clones. I think some parts in Coruscant that don't look so great. Uh, and the, Phantom Menace, we did just talk about all the amazing production design stuff there that's yeah. incredible. No, no, I'm thinking about the Coliseum in Attack of the Clones, which uh, like I think that scene is pretty spectacular. That is impressive, yep. Yeah, yeah. That is absolutely very impressive. And there's parts in Geonosis for, for sure. Yeah. Um, but then there's some things like decks can look a little bit weird in some certain scenes. But regardless of that, you have Rogue One, which is incredible the way that you're able to reimagine what was done in a new hope but doing it where you're amping up the tech to that new kind of level uh the way that they're able to bring the death star in so close to the surface of scarif yeah. jetta and it's just it's so menacing and it it's just so bloody cool uh the leia one isn't great the leia cgi face thing but the tarkin one still works for me I still don't get the weird, like, uncanny valley. No, it's fine. Um, and just the usage of those two in general, like, it was really quite a big deal. Like, we had seen it yeah. a little bit for young Tony Stark, and I think it was uh, Civil War. But, like, by and large, this way of having a different person be a uh, a different person was was quite remarkable for me. I can still remember my, my reaction to even... Princess Leia turning up in that movie, which I agree now to look at it as like, oh, yeah, that's not right, but... I don't know. I was enough engrossed in the movie that that particular visual effect sold for me. Yeah. I mean, it sold for me the first time I watched it. Uh, and it's now, I mean, it's, it's one of those moments that I really just think George Lucas, this people just recut it with a deep fake and you're fine. Yeah. We already have a way, way, way better example of a young Leia done in the rise of Skywalker right. by, <laughs> Billy Lord. And so, and there's an example right there, the rise of Skywalker 
is so damn impressive in this category. You have Mark Hamill and Billy Lord doing young Luke and Leia. You have uh, Carrie Fisher portraying a character after she's passed and then inserting that in and being able to have, like they subtly change Ray's clothes. They change all of uh, Leia's clothes. Uh, It's, it's just incredible the way that they're able to so seamlessly put that in. And it may not be perfect in the storytelling, but it's damn perfect from a visuals perspective, the way that they're able to put her in. And that is really impressive. The X, everything Exical yes. is so impressive. Yeah. Everything, all the Star Destroyers, the lightning, uh, it can be a little bit hard to see it sometimes. That doesn't take away from the visual specimen that you're looking at. Uh, flying through that weird kind of maw into the unknown regions. Uh, it is a re- the, the water crashing around the Death Star. Uh, the way that they did that, if you watch some of the behind the scenes, uh, it's really impressive. They sprayed them with water cannons oh, cool. so that they'd be soaked in water. But the way that the water, like they had to still re-simulate all the water because the water that doesn't crash against things that way. So that was how they could get them soaked, but they still need to read. So it was just, it's a really impressive what went into this film from a technical perspective in such a short amount of time. And let's not forget your favorite moment in that movie. It's just people when the whole galaxy turns up to help save the day. Yeah. And they just do, 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 do. It's just, it's so cool looking to see all those ships uh, just come in at once. Uh, that, yeah, that entire, and also when Exical, and I think one of the most, under talked about things in the entire movie when Exical has daybreak mm-hmm. at the end. That's yeah. a really cool visual when it's no longer storming there. Uh, and it just is like, wow, everything is everything we've just seen is, is just ever so slightly different now. And that's that's impressive. And then they also uh, go and uh, give us a really cool new lightsaber at the very last second with that really <laughs> cool little twist switch and the light flicker. It's it's cool. And then, of course, the one that starts it off with A New Hope. Which it's is mostly the, all practical effects, and that's really an entirely different art form. Uh, they were able to, you know, create this uh, totally convincing bit of theater of of Luke, our hero, flying in his X-wing fighter through the trenches of the Death Star, which was in fact just a camera in like a tiny little shoebox, and, and like all kinds of stuff that was able to to blow up these practical models into this galactic stratospheric visual was revolutionary at the time uh to the extent that it was able to give us everything that we talk about on this podcast weekly and so it can't be overlooked um kind of can't follow that uh gives us everything we talk about weekly on this podcast um as much as i sorry (laughs) we say that all the time it's everything to star wars we're very hyperbolic we are but in that same way uh I kind of can't disagree with you there yeah. because when it comes to uh, the pieces being fa- like the, the sum of the parts is, is far greater than the, whatever the saying is, I'm tired. Um, <laughs> this is the biggest piece. Yes. This carries, this carries the most weight in a new hope. Right. Uh, and as much as I actually really wanted to give this one to the rise of Skywalker, the Oscar goes to a new hope. This this is this takes us back to when we talked about our favorite musical compositions and you're like, no, screw you. It's the main credits theme. That's the best one. It's like, look, we can try and have hot takes all we want. Sometimes there's a right answer. And the first Star Wars movie changed movies with its visuals. (laughs) Changed movies 
forever. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the rise of Skywalker uh, deserved the Oscar as well. I, yes. I, I, I think it got snubbed and I think uh, the real Oscar. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it was a very, very Im- impressive film. And I wanted to make sure it got its due there because that is, uh, I think, I, I, I don't think they, I think every dollar spent on that movie, you can see on the screen and a lot of money was spent. Okay, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. I've created a new category that I can't believe I didn't think to include before. So you're not going to have heard of this one before. It has three ah. nominees and you just have to decide on the fly which one you think is the best. And it's for achievement in motion capture performance. The best mocap CGI performance the nominees include Ahmed Best in The Phantom Menace, Lupita Nyong'o for The Force Awakens, and Andy Serkis in The Last Jedi. It's a good one. Good category to add in as well. So this differs from uh, voiceover-only performance because these this is an instance where the actor was, in fact, performing the motions of the character, even though we don't see their actual flesh in the movie. The Their embodiment is, in fact, the performance, not just the voiceover. Yeah, I guess. Is that motion capture or performance capture? The same um, thing, yeah. Yeah, it's called so mo- it's, it's like called it's... mocap colloquially. Okay, yeah. So yeah. It, like it was so impressive what Ahmed Best did. I mean, he's really was one of the first pioneers of the way that uh, motion capture was done. And as annoying as Jar Jar is, he executes in the way he's supposed to. Yes, and it's with a lot of physicality. <laughs> uh, you can't take that away in in the slightest. And uh, the acting performance itself uh, is, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we've we've talked a lot about sure. Jar Jar. There's not a whole lot to say there, but it's it's really impressive what he's able to do, like with the uh, the way that people built their Darth Jar Jar theories around, like his like drunken fist fighting style, because he's just all over the place and kind of weaving back and forth. But the character is this just weird serpent like. Like he's bobbing his head along and he looks really weird when he does it. But that's because Ahmed Best is paying attention to every part of his body when he's playing Jar Jar. And that's really impressive. And by the way, he's so much more mobile than uh, than both Lupita and Andy Serkis in their respective yeah. roles. And, and that's not necessarily what makes this performance great uh, for any of them. It's not necessarily what what determines the winner, but it, it is a big factor in that he's running around literally running around and throwing stuff and swimming at times and interacting with people in all different places whereas uh, Mas Kanata and Snoke tend to stay pretty stationary in their respective uh, uh, cameos one's a yeah. starring role or, or at least like a secondary role and the other are kind of tertiary roles yeah absolutely and Maz Kanata especially the character is interesting but there's not a whole lot that really happens with Maz. Maz is almost an un- Maz, no. Maz is an unfulfilled promise. Yes, uh, she is a better story for another time, and we didn't get that other story uh, because yes, the story of the lightsaber, but her herself. There's so many more things to learn about Maz, and so oh, yeah. we just we di- we just didn't get enough. You don't get enough of the performance capture, like jumping up on the table and like squeezing, looking him with the eyes. That's just mm-hmm. not enough uh, to really have made the character stand off the page uh, as a performance more than just 
a really good voiceover work. Right. It could have just been a, a, a puppet that was not very mobile. And I think Lapita would have done just as well. Now, the thing uh, about Andy Serkis is it's almost striking that they decided to cast him in this role because he's so mobily capable in in mocap because like he's a real pioneer in the art form and I've often said that I wish there was a way to give him uh some kind of honorary academy award uh even though they don't have like the appropriate parameters in order to give him one at this point but he has delivered so much to to film in general as a performance capture artist I mean there's really no comparison between him and any other actor in what they've given to that particular art form. He's kind of a performative genius in that way. And so he's deserving of a nominee, nomination. Oh, 100%. And I actually, I think this should be a real category at the Oscars. And if it were, then it would go to him because it's a slam dunk that he deserves it for a body of work. Yes. And what he did with Snoke is really impressive. He's very menacing and pure evil, similar to the way that... Uh, Ian McDermott would do with Palpatine. Yes. He really plays a very menacing meat puppet. Um, and he is a, there is puppeteering going along as well with, but of course the, the, the facial performance uh, done by Andy Serkis too. Uh, but because of all the things that we said, all the different components that go into it, uh, the Oscar goes to Ahmed best. Agreed. Uh, you're welcome for not including Phoebe Waller-Bridge in this category. Oh yeah, thank you. All right, yeah, we're she would have been last. We're in some of the high-ranking categories now. The meaty ones. Next up, best actress in a leading role. The nominees are Carrie Fisher in The Empire Strikes Back, Natalie Portman in Revenge of the Sith, Felicity Jones in Rogue One: A Star Wars Story, Daisy Ridley in The Last Jedi, and Kelly Marie Tran in The Last Jedi. I know you have some opinions on this category. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I, I, I don't think the right, I, I think the Phantom Menace should have been chosen for, for Natalie Portman. I think that is her best performance. I think Revenge of the Sith might be her worst performance. Okay, wow. Uh, I just, the, the barefoot and pregnant, uh, she does play excited well, but she plays worried very poorly, I find. And the the Anakin, you're breaking my heart. And I disagree. There are parts I, I that think just the, really don't land for me. I think the, I think the final act of that movie, her performance uh, where she's most heavily featured, I think the Mustafar scene is pretty effective. And we, we could talk again about how George's dialogue in that movie is uh, imperfect at times, but I think mm. it's where she handles it the best. And, and in part, you know, to your point, it's because it's, it's where she gets to be the most emotive and, arguably over the top but i just find her a little flat i guess in the phantom menace um yeah i think but i think that's supposed to i, I see that more as controlled uh because of the way that the character's supposed to be okay uh but personally as someone who i think is a little bit flat is actually felicity jones and i know this is not someone that not something that everybody agrees with uh i think this is one that some people love Jin. i just don't i, I find Jin to be pretty boring uh the ursos don't intrigue me that much their father-daughter relationship uh we don't get to see enough of it for me to care enough uh and i don't feel like i mean she does a really good job when she does a break when she breaks down after seeing her father's message but 
I don't feel like that necessarily carries through the entire time. And there are some really great moments and it is a great acting performance, but I just do find it a little dull and it doesn't draw me into the character the way that other performances would. And that's a little odd for the lead character in a Star Wars movie. I'm not sure there is much of a character. And I don't know that that's unusual for a lot of action movies. I think that they had so much fun building this ensemble that they kind of forgot to give the lead character any specific traits. And so she's heroic and brave and she loves her dad. But like, she doesn't really have a thing herself. Like even the way Cassian has a certain charisma. And that's the thing is in most cases, people are stealing the scene from the star in this movie. She's not doing anything wrong. It's just, there's something inherent in the writing of Jin Erso that's that there wasn't a whole lot for her to do with that. Um, it's not it's not offensive. It just doesn't jump off the screen. Yeah, yeah uh, there's that yeah, very well said. Uh, Kelly Marie Tran, another one. Uh, I like Kelly Marie Tran uh, as a, as a person. She seems really really nice and has a great attitude. Uh, but at that same capacity, I don't think she does a great acting performance in The Last Jedi. No. There just aren't that many lead acting roles in Star Wars for females, no. uh, and that is uh, being corrected more, which is great, uh, but it'll be nice in a decade when someone who's a little bit more fitting can can be in that in that spot. And I, hopefully, I mean, it, it would have been great for her <laughs> to have an opportunity in The Rise of Skywalker to be considered maybe a leading character. Right. Uh, but that was completely taken away from her and uh, was given, oh, you got to study those old Star Destroyer specs and uh, get two minutes of screen time in and uh, that'll be good enough. But it was the best thing Ryan Johnson ever did. So unsurprisingly, this brings our best lead actress category down to two obvious performances. Uh, and they are by Carrie Fisher and Daisy Ridley. Both, you know, very important to Star Wars. And you have to be careful in the community because to some people, it would seem quite ridiculous that we're litigating this, but this is a pro-Daisy podcast. Um, and, yeah, absolutely. And it's a pro-Last Jedi podcast. And and by the way, no matter what you think of that movie, she's so good in this movie. Like, it, oh, yeah. And, and, and yes, the chemistry matters, but that's true also of Carrie Fisher's performance in Empire Strikes Back. And so it doesn't matter that they're both performances that rely on their co-stars and their ensemble. They're both incredibly emotional. They're both part twos in their trilogy. And so it's a character we've had an opportunity to meet before, but not see fully realized yet. But the actress has lived in the role and gotten to know her a little bit. And so um, I think they're tough to compare these two performances. And I don't know that there's a correct answer. Yeah, I I thought that there was one that did seem the most right to me. But at the same time, I completely agree with you. These are two exceptional performances. And it's nice that you're able that we're able to kind of really recognize both of them. And I think it's ridiculous when people think that this one is is, is a pure slam dunk. And Carrie Fisher and Harrison have such a great chemistry that they're presenting on the screen. Uh, but when you look at a lot of the shots that they do individually neither of them is holding anything back. Everything like that you get, Leia is just poting off to the side and she's just infuriated with Han or she's extremely worried about when they're out lost in the snow. Uh, and then the warming she slowly has to him throughout the film, uh, but still caring for Luke there. And so as much as they're playing off one another, there's so much emotion that they that she has that 
it, it, it doesn't matter. You're getting such an A plus performance uh, on just what she's doing when she's even alone in the cockpit. And then the Minoc freaks her out and she screams and goes and runs out. And so it's, uh, and then of course, at the end with the, uh, I love you. And then the, I know everybody talks about the, the, I know, but the, I love you is the one that is, she's has spent the entire movie, not wanting to say that. Yeah. And you can tell from the performance and then you can tell from the performance that she means it too. And so it's really impressive. And then alternatively with Daisy, you've got her really trying something the exact opposite. She is trying to get this grouch to, uh, you know, come to her side a little bit more. Come on, grouch. Right. Buck up, buddy. <laughs> let's be, yeah. yeah, buck up and let's be friends. <laughs> um, but it uh, doesn't work. And then she eventually gives up on him. Uh, but the relationship that she has with Adam Driver and the way that they're able to, like their scenes together are so good. The like, oh, I don't want to do this now. And the, well, yeah, me neither. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's so impressive. And the way that she's able, when she sees rain for the first time, mm. the smile on her face, She's so like, oh my God, what is this? This is water. Oh, my, this is, you could just, Daisy Ridley is English. Yes. She knows what rain is. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great point. Yeah. But you don't, it doesn't look like it right. when you see Ray's face on Octo. And that is so impressive. Mm -hmm. And so I, yeah, I would be happy to give it to either of them in this category, although I do have a choice. And the Oscar goes to Carrie Fisher. Yeah, no one's going to argue with that. Literally nobody in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and including Daisy Ridley probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. But but they are comparable performances without being yeah. uh like Daisy's performance is is stands alone. It's not derivative and yet it also feels like mm. such a great uh 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 not a placeholder. It just fills that cavity because even still Star Wars has is, you know, where they have strong lead females it lacks them as well and so she i really think holds a lot on her shoulders in particular in this movie and and she's done a fine job but carrie fisher's one of a kind and that movie is perfect so it's tough yeah. to beat. And, and i mean if you're talking about uh the other films that they do as well i mean that's three knockout performances in a row from both of them yes bingo all right uh moving on to best direction i think this is going to be fun Reminder, you can't be nominated twice in a category, and so we really run the gamut with five uh, interesting and diverse directors. The nominees in this category are George Lucas, A New Hope, Irvin Kirshner, The Empire Strikes Back, Richard Marquand, Return of the Jedi, J.J. Abrams, The Force Awakens, and Ryan Johnson for The Last Jedi. So these are these this is are an good. interesting one. It's a really interesting one. Two of these names, Irvin Kirshner and Richard Marquand, are not household names outside of like Star Wars diehards. A lot of people would be mm -hmm. surprised to find out George Lucas did not direct those other two movies and just remarkably got better at directing for a brief window in the early eighties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he didn't. Uh, they made wonderful films, and then these young guns, JJ and Ryan, have both worked on wonderful cinema uh, outside Star Wars 
and within it. And so there's a real conversation to be had here that all five of them have brought something incredibly necessary to the galaxy far, far away. Absolutely. Uh, very well said. There's one who is, uh, to, to, to most people who know some of the behind, a lot of the behind the scenes on, on the film, there's one here that's going to get knocked out right away. And that is because he didn't do much of the directing work because George Lucas wouldn't let him. And that would be Richard Marquand. <laughs> okay. And uh, that would be just because control freak George Lucas did a lot of the directing on Return of the Jedi. Uh, and also from a directing perspective, it is really well done, uh, but it is not as well directed as its, uh, as its previous movie, for example, with Irvin Kirshner and Empire. Why is that? Uh, Why did George give Irvin Kirshner the reins on the second Star Wars movie, but needs so badly to finish it up himself? Uh, I don't know exactly the reason as to why Irving Kirshner wasn't in, involved in, in any way on uh, Return of the Jedi. Uh, but I think likely was because a matter of wanting somebody who could be a little bit more flexible and wasn't his mentor. So Irving right. Kirshner was George Lucas's mentor and wow. he was his professor. And so it was having him come in. That's the reason as to why Irving Kirshner got to do some things that George Lucas maybe didn't agree with because he respected him to such a high degree. And also Irving Kirshner was a little bit more willing to do things and then just have George Lucas deal with it than asking permission and then getting told no, which was a famous thing George Lucas would do because he had his very clear cut vision. Right. Uh, but that allowed a lot of flexibility. And within that flexibility, it provided more flexibility to the actors and then of course to writing and then that all flows through very naturally that when you have somebody who's uh a very uh, accomplished and, and smart and academic director who's working with all these other key parties but listening to them you're going to get something pretty special and we certainly do well um, and what you just described is, is partially how jj abrams gets the job of directing star wars because he's seen as an innovator, but also like a pretty good executive. Like he's got this great resume even before 2015 or 2013 when they announced the acquisition or his directorship. Like, yes, this guy can be banked upon. He has this long rap sheet of things that have worked. He's a great collaborator and he's just academically proficient as a filmmaker, um, you know, to say nothing of the Star Trek of it all. Uh, similarly with Ryan Johnson, but on a much smaller scale in terms of cinematic experience. He's much more of an auteur than J.J. Abrams is, where J.J. Abrams is a shepherd for a single creative vision. And that is kind of what a great director is, is a, is a guiding light for a creative entity of collaborators. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you kind of view it that way, uh, I I guess I would come to a, a similar conclusion to what I was mentioning before. Um, I guess maybe in the Oscar goes to uh, Irving Kirshner. Yeah, I mean, it's not George. Uh, it can't be because George is not a good collaborator and he's not really great at bringing his vision to light. He's just gotten lucky a few times with his other genius. 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say he's not necessarily great at being, but I guess you, yeah, you could say his other genius is what allows bringing his visions to light to occur. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and I think that what you said is, is true. I think JJ uh, absolutely excels in those areas. I think JJ might be a better producer than a director. I think he may have a, a better future in that for his his visions on those things, because I don't know how much um, collaborative work may be done on the fly on those things. Uh, or I guess maybe I don't know how successful some of that uh, on the fly work can be compared to some of the other uh, successes that have been had amongst these individuals. I think Ryan Johnson, you look at somebody who stuck with a plan, but was also uh, highly regarded as being very collaborative, worked very closely with Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm. Uh, and, and that's the reason why he was offered the job uh, of Rise of Skywalker before JJ was because of how well he got along with uh, Kathleen Kennedy and the rest of Lucasfilm. And so those things are all valuable. And like we said, all of these guys are impressive sons of bitches <laughs> for well, what they've given us in Star Wars. It's really interesting that that JJ, for at least a while, if not still, was kind of cultivating this unofficial reputation as being like the next Spielberg. When Spielberg really made his bones being uh, an idea man, like having these incredible ideas of, of, of E.T. And, and I mean, Jaws is based on a book. But um, I, I guess J.J.'s Star Trek was Spielberg's Jurassic Park, right? It was like bringing this pre-existing IP that's very precious to people and making it bigger and more cinematic than it's ever been. And it really, really worked. But J.J.'s not an idea man very many times. Even Lost is, is Damon Lindelof's creation. But that's the thing. JJ is somebody who is a launcher. Yep. He's not uh, necessarily a finisher either. Right. And so as much as he's maybe not the idea man, he's going to be your catalyst to making things better mm -hmm. uh, or providing the platform for other people to do incredible things. And so I think that's where maybe some of the work that he's... Who um, who did the deal with Bad Robot? Is that Netflix or Apple? Uh, maybe Apple. Yeah, or, I don't think it's... Maybe, I don't think it's Netflix. Might be Apple. Maybe, maybe it might not even be Apple, but I think it's Apple now that I think of it. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, they're going to get some probably some damn good content soon because uh, the man knows what he's doing. And then I think also Ryan Johnson might be the most gifted director among these nominees. His probably. his direction in Star Wars is not necessarily going to you know stand out as the greatest ever. Though I really love the Last Jedi and I, oh, I, I and the direction. The direction and and the writing. I, I I think that he has contributed a wonderful thing to Star Wars fans, um, but I think he works better smaller, um, or or maybe not. But he, he's just clearly not the winner of this particular category. Shall we move on? Yeah. All right. The penultimate category is best actor in a leading role, and the nominees are Alec Guinness, A New Hope, Harrison Ford. The Empire Strikes Back, Mark Hamill, Return of the Jedi, Ewan McGregor, Revenge of the Sith, and Adam Driver in The Last Jedi. Your thoughts? Beefy category. It's a really hefty category. You will notice that- Listen. Heavy hitters. This essentially confirms that John Boyega and Hayden Christensen, the two biggest Star Wars stars who completely were snubbed by our Oscars. It's unfortunate. It's just how the mm -hmm. cards fell. Yep. John Boyega's, uh, if we could have qualified him 
as a supporting actor in The Force Awakens, I would have certainly put him in there over uh, Donald Glover. Uh, but I don't think you can classify him as a supporting He's actor a star in Force of that Awakens. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. So that's unfortunate and would have got him one in that regard. But the way that they do it in the Oscars, you do get to kind of decide on yourself. So had we get the choice, we would have submitted you, John Boyega. Well, and, and <laughs> but, the other the other side is that you might argue Alec Guinness is in a supporting role in A New Hope. But sometimes, you could argue pe- that too. sometimes people get run in the wrong category. That happens in the real Oscars. And so Alec uh, Guinness is the legend. If this were real, he's more likely to get nominated than John Boyega. Um. Was he nominated in the supporting category? Uh, I don't know. That's a good he, question. He was nominated, so I just don't remember whether it was supporting or lead. I think supporting. I mean, almost certainly. It, it, yeah. Probably. I mean, looking at that performance, again, this is reallocating because of what Star Wars is and what it means, but that's a supporting role for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's of course, we have got, we do have two uh, Ewan McGregor, we do have two Obi-Wans in here though, which is yep. kind of cool yep. uh, from both of their performances. Had two and, Landos uh, in the, the other back. category, right? Yep. And, and the back-to-back of their performances as well. I would uh, I would agree on that completely. Alec Guinness, the gravitas that he brings, the the mastery that he brings, the, the first speech telling Luke about his father and mm-hmm. the Clone Wars and with forces and about a lightsaber. I mean, talk about some of the most iconic things in all of Star Wars. So perfect. Yeah, uh, it's the best. And just these moments uh, where you can see the like the PTSD in his eyes uh, and what we're really going to be building an entire show from one angle on. Mm-hmm. And then the other show, the other angle you're going to build a show on is this guy who's lost this brother that he's trained and we're able to see that performance of him screaming at him about it and so that's incredible and we've talked so much about ewan mcgregor's performance in revenge of the sith that no need to to go into that with too much more detail uh i think you do have i mean probably the five right uh choices here maybe Mark Hamill for The Last Jedi. I think that might be my favorite performance of his, but his Return of the Jedi performance is also incredible, of course. Yeah, interesting. Like, I I hope you know, it, while it, it it's valid, it's such a hot take to say that the best Luke Skywalker is Last Jedi Luke Skywalker. Yeah, that is a hot take. I, heard, <laughs> I would agree on that one, probably. Uh, but from an acting perspective, I don't know if it's that hot of a take. Sure. Uh, I think Mark Hamill is really everybody's so angry for a reason Mm. there was a reason why people hated him in the last jedi because they believed it yeah and they didn't like it they didn't like that their hero that they saw in return of the jedi was different but it's time and time hardened him a little bit and that people aren't perfect and i think that it was the way that even though Mark Hamill wrestled with the way that the character was being portrayed, he delivered it in a way that was such a high caliber. But then in Return of the Jedi, you also have him transitioning from being this naive kid to being kind of a different character again. Yes. And that's a really, and we don't know exactly like, okay, how far is he taking things? He's choking a guy out at the start. Uh, he's dressed all in black. And it just, it, we don't really know every, like Luke is a bit of a mystery throughout Return of the Jedi until the end when you realize like throws a saber away and no, I'll never join you. I'm a Jedi like my father before me. Uh, and 
that's like that's like I've said before, that is the most impactful Luke Skywalker moment and one of the most impactful moments in in film. And so the fact that he's front and center in that is huge. Uh, and then the two who I think are probably the ones who most people would choose would be Harrison Ford and Adam Driver is probably the leaders in this category. Interesting. I, I would not consider Harrison Ford to be a front runner in this category. And, and it's nothing against him. I mean, we've talked a lot about, about Leia's strengths in this movie. We've talked a lot about Empire Strikes Back tonight, unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. that That's the headlines say. Big win for episode five at last night's Oscars. Uh, and, and that's that's not going to surprise anybody. Harrison Ford is, that's the movie in which he's the best and he's good in all of them. Um, but I, th- I think, for me anyway, the conversation, just in terms of like thespian skill, surprisingly, is between Ewan McGregor and Adam Driver. Yeah. I mean, Ewan McGregor kills it. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's phenomenal in that movie. Uh, and he's my, he's my number three, uh, on here. Uh, he is absolutely incredible in that film. Uh, you, the, the, that final scene is the one that, that does it, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's, we've, we talked about that so much and the, the subtle playing with his mustache, he does that a lot throughout the film. Um, but Harrison Ford and uh, and Adam Driver both deliver some powerhouse performances. One uh, just so cool and likable and unsure of himself, but so sure of himself, and just a very layered performance. This guy who wants to leave but doesn't want to leave, but wants to get somebody else to tell him to, and it's the same reason why Alden couldn't do it. Yeah. He did, he did it perfectly. He did everything right, except for being too short. But aren't you a little short for a Han Solo? <laughs> but aside from that, it's just, it was just proof that it couldn't be done. No, exactly. You can't, you can't repeat that level of swagger. And he delivers it in a way that is so effortless. Um, but for me, the winner and the Oscar goes to Adam Driver. Yes, it, this is a top three best performance in all of Star Wars. It's one of the best villain performances I've ever seen. Certainly the best villain performance I've ever seen in like, I, I mean, maybe other than like Palpatine and Darth Vader. Uh, it's like in a franchise movie, in a Disney franchise movie, no less. Like, sorry, Than- sorry Thanos. Like, yeah. absolutely Kylo Ren, Last Jedi. Write home, tell your mother how good this was. It's so impressive, and the way that he, you, you think he's turned good. Yeah. And then, no, he hasn't. And the the back and forth they have throughout the entire film, as much as Daisy Ridley delivers a phenomenal performance, he's, you just don't know what he's thinking. You yeah. don't know what he's doing. And you you want to the entire time and he's keeping you just on the end of a string, the back and forth. He does with Snoke that when he breaks his mask, the anger that he has there, he's seething by the end of the film, but just a few minutes earlier, he seemed like he kind of just turned good. It's just, it's all over the place. He's phenomenal in the rise of Skywalker. He's phenomenal in the force awakens. I mean, I'd say of the top seven or eight performances in all of star wars he's got three of them yeah uh easily it's no contest about it and the last jedi is his best performance of all of them because you get 
the the full range. You get to see these shimmers of what Ben Solo maybe was that you didn't get to see in the force awakens. And then we do finally get to see in the rise of Skywalker, but the fact that you're able to see kind of that duality of the character and really opening it up like, Oh, Whoa, this guy is, a, this is a lot more than what we saw than the kid throwing temper tantrums in the last movie. This, this man's got some demons. And when he doesn't kill his mom, but then she blows up anyway. Yeah. And it's like, it's yeah, it's just incredible. He's and uh, starting- talking about Han, He's starting to get some press for some new movie, I guess, that he's in. I don't know anything about it, but um, Adam Driver... I saw a tweet today where he's de- his performance is described as ad- as very Adam Driver-y. <laughs> and we're at a point now where, like, the best way to describe Adam Driver is just to say, well, he's Adam Driver. And, and yeah. the, the like, I guess the point of that is he's so singular, and that's very on display in The Last Jedi. He You've kind of never seen anything like this guy before. He's so new and different. And mesmerizing for that reason, and yet he's not a cartoon character. Like it is so grounded and and sincere, um, and that's one of the things that makes this character that not unlike Ian McDermott's uh, Palpatine or Revenge of the Sith somehow work in spite of being so big and and on the edge of ridiculous, and yet it's it completely toes the line uh, proficiently. Uh, he's amazing. He's a, a master worker. More, more. <laughs> like, I, I think you got him. Yeah. And, but it's, it, yeah, it's incredible. And then when he realizes Luke isn't there, just the pure horror on his face, the dice disappearing in his hand. Uh, yeah, it is. It is a performance to write home about. Moving on to the last category, the most boring category of the discussion we've all had, God knows how many times, which is best motion yeah. motion picture. Now, in the actual Academy Awards, only up to ten movies can, in fact, qualify. There have been eleven theatrically released feature length films in Star Wars, which means one can't qualify. So I'm going to read the nominees, which are Star Wars: A New Hope. The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, The Rise of Skywalker, and Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. You will notice that one is missing from that list, and no one, or at least not on this podcast, will be sorry to see it missing. It would be quite ridiculous to say that Solo is the best Star Wars movie of all time. So I don't think anyone's going to be too <laughs> alienated. Uh, I think it would be ridiculous. Some people actually don't. And yeah. some people would definitely find it ridiculous to not to have it as our least favorite of the live action Star Wars movies. Well, it is. But the fact that we both agree on that is awesome Good because enough. it is 100% number 11 for me. <laughs> and uh, the rest of these, as much as we want to talk about them, I know it's very obvious what my number one is, and I know uh, at a point in time it was your number one, and I know the argument for your number one, and I cannot argue with it either. Yeah, it's a toss-up. There's only two correct answers to this question, and it's A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Both answers are correct, but since you get final say, the Oscar goes to... The Empire Strikes Back. Good enough for me, man. Again, everyone's like, oh, yeah, obviously. Man, big night for Empire. I mean, yeah, and I mean, I shouldn't say that there's only like two answers. I mean, some people I could I could see if you make an argument for Return of the Jedi, 
Um, I mean, uh, from a favorite perspective, I guess. Yeah, favorite, sure. Okay, I guess. Yeah, I guess we are talking about best in that best regard. picture. And so yeah. if, if if we are doing that, I guess it is pretty hard. But yeah, my favorite is also the one I objectively think is the best, and that would be Empire Strikes Back. But I think beneficially for all the other reasons that we've mentioned and given credit to A New Hope, uh, it also makes it a little bit easier to not give this to A New Hope. Um, because as much as A New Hope deserves it for its originality, we did award it for its originality already, thankfully. I think so too. I'm so I'm so relieved we made it through those 13 categories. I'm exhausted. <laughs> so yes, much that talking. took a long time. It, it took, took a, a lot long longer time. than I thought. I yeah. rambled for sure. That's okay. I think it was fun. Do we have any like really pressing news or should we just get to the birthdays? Uh, we don't have any pressing news. Uh, one uh, little rumor that I did here uh, that is pretty cool is a uh, good chance we're going to get Wookiees uh, in the next season of Mandalorian is what has been said. There's a heavy rumor cool. on that. Uh, but I heard a rumor a long time ago that Black Chrysanthemum was going to be in the season uh, or in the Book of Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. So he is uh, the biggest, meanest bounty hunter Wookiee in the galaxy. Cool. And so... If we get him in Mando or Book of Boba Fett, people are going to lose their minds. And he's a character that's appeared in the Dr. Aphra storylines. And Dr. Aphra is another character that there's rumor is uh, going to be getting her own um, live action story as well. And I think is is just a, a an obvious choice. Yes. She's Indiana Jones in space and it just makes a ton of sense. And so doing something like that, it, it's further potential uh, that that could be something we could see in Mando or Book of Boba Fett is opening those doors there. Uh, other than that, there's some other things in the news, but we can get to the birthdays because there's there's really nothing major. Okay. Uh, happy birthday to the Andes this week. On Tuesday, April 20th, to Andy Circus, who we talked about a little bit tonight. And uh, on Monday, April 26th, who wasn't nominated for anything this evening, Andy Secombe, who played Watto in The Phantom Watto. Menace. Definitely, you know, he gave us something kind of weirdly, hey, kind, hey. kind of weirdly love Watto in my own strange way. Uh, yeah, listen, me too. We would love to hear uh, your thoughts on these uh, Oscars, both the nominees and the selections. Surely we said something tonight that you completely and wholeheartedly disagree with. We'd love to hear that. You can tweet us uh, at recorder six, six. You can email recorder six, six podcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review on your preferred podcast app whatever app you might be using to listen to us. Or if you enjoy us on YouTube, it'd be awesome if you could uh, like and subscribe. That way we can uh, find our way towards uh, a larger Star Wars loving community. And until we are together again, may the force be with you.